How many of you had already had a good time in church this morning? I have as well. There's something about that song Waymaker, isn't there? I heard it on the radio, I um, can't remember how long ago, but I just thought that is such a great song, such a simple song too. Um, me and the guitar player David here, we were joking around um, the other day and we were just marveling at how there's only four chords in that whole song, just over and over and over again. And yet when we sing it and we repeat those choruses over and over again, it cements that fact that God is a way maker. He's going to make a way no matter what you're going through. When you see no way, and that, may that be our life's refrain. Refrain is just another word for chorus, and you sing that chorus over and over again, and it sounds beautiful when you do. Turn your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 today. Galatians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want you to continue to be in prayer for Pastor and his family as their, um, Pastor and Angie are going to be taking another week to get some rest this week, and um, I'm not sure if they're watching live stream or not, but if they are, good morning. And um, be in prayer as well for uh, Ms. Doris Wilson and Ms. Pat Lemon as they are uh, undergoing cancer treatments right now. Please be in prayer as well for Ms. Rosemary Jones. I have not heard an update yet, uh, but you, uh, I believe she is still in an induced coma and um, still needs the doctors and, and all of our prayers to uh, help her through this time. But uh, be in prayer for them as well this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Let's pray before we get started. I know we just prayed, but let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. I pray today that as your people have gathered here, that they would learn and be moved by something that is written in your word. That we would go with our hearts changed, with decisions made, with renewed focus this week as we worship you this morning in the preaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I'd like to talk to you this morning about the silliest thing to be embarrassed about. How many of you are familiar with a Sadie Hawkins banquet? Anybody heard that before? 
I know those of you that went to Pensacola Christian College, you know. We had it as well at the Bible college that I went to in California. The college faculty every year had a number of different banquets and activities for the students. Typically in the fall, you would have a, a, a fall banquet as well as a Christmas banquet. And in the spring, you'd have a spring banquet. And all, these, all three of these banquets, uh, you know, your, your college guys would get up the nerve to ask that special college girl out to this banquet. You get all dressed up fancy, sit down for a nice meal, and the faculty would serve us a meal, and we'd have a great night. Lasted two or three hours each banquet. Uh, just a wonderful break from uh, just, the, just the, your homework, your projects, and things like that during the day. Well, there is a, there's one final banquet before the spring semester ends, and this one is called the Sadie Hawkins Banquet. If you're not familiar with the Sadie Hawkins Banquet is, it is the banquet in which the roles are reversed. Every college girl gets to ask a college guy to the banquet, okay? As you can imagine, this kind of goes against conventional wisdom, or at least what uh, most of us grew up with, right? Guys typically ask the girl. The girls ask the guy at City Hawkins Banquet, and um, the one year, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, um, it was getting pretty close to the banquet. I had not been asked by anybody yet. I can't imagine why, right? Um, <laughs> but there was one girl who came up to me, and she, uh, she, she said, hey, I've got a group going to Sadie Hawkins Banquet. I'm at the, my date is actually um, so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, we are going to go as uh, the, the president and the first lady. And I, I, want, I'm, I'm, I want a couple of you to be like secret service, like an entourage. You know? I'm like, okay, so it's kind of like a group activity, going as, a, going as friends, right? Um, the thing with Sadie Hawkins is that typically on your other banquets, you get dressed up really fancy. For Sadie Hawkins, you get dressed up in any kind of theme you want. So some, some uh, couples would go as uh, like Woody and Bo Peep. Uh, some would go as uh, somebody like, I'm just thinking of Toy Story characters, Buzz Lightyear and Jesse. Um, they, they would make it fun. They would dre get dressed up. It was, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of like trunk or treat for adults, right, for college students. Um, so you get dressed up. So what they decided to go as is the president and the first lady, who at the time, this would have been 2011 or 2012, so President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, okay? So we come to night of the banquet, and... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start laughing. It's, it, this is 10 years ago, but I'm still cringing from this, okay? So we, we, all, all of us guys get to the front of her dormitory, and we're waiting for her, okay? And so the guy, that's, the, that's her date. He's playing President Barack Obama. He just happens to be black as well, so he looks the part. She comes out. True story. She comes out. She has fairly light skin. She comes out, and she has black makeup all over her face. All over her face all over her arms, just everywhere. I think on her legs too, I can't remember. But anyway, she comes out and she's, got, she's, she's made up and just completely black. And I'm thinking right now, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> For the next three hours, I wanted to be anywhere but this banquet. But for the next three hours, I was forced to I wasn't forced, but I, I figured if I left at this point, it, it would kind of be it would kind of be bad. But we we went around the, that, and I could just I was just trying to get away from and avoid any of my friends that that may have seen me that night, and and avoid all the jokes, avoid all the laughing, and it for three hours I wanted to be anywhere but there. I was so embarrassed. I could not bring my I, I did not want to be there at that moment. How many of you have ever felt the same way in a situation? You go with somebody, maybe it's friends, maybe it's somebody, I don't know what it is, but certainly all of us can relate to the fact that you've been embarrassed at some point in your life. You didn't want to be seen or associated with somebody 
you can fill in your own story there, but that's kind of my embarrassing story from college. And that was 10 years ago, and I still, I still cringe every time I think about it. I'm glad that there are no pictures around on Facebook, hopefully. But we see here in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter was embarrassed. What was Peter embarrassed about? Of all things to be embarrassed about, Peter was embarrassed of the gospel. And the Bible says it right here. He's playing a hypocrite along with the Jews and all of the, uh, and Barnabas and the men that came from Jerusalem. How many of you know any hypocrites? I think all of us, right? I know one quite well. He's selfish. He's prideful. He oftentimes extends and holds up standards for others that he cannot keep himself. And every morning when I look at him in the mirror, I tell him, you need to be better today. We're all a little, if you've been safe for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we feel like we get up and we play the part, but we don't feel at all like a Christian. Sadly, that's how Peter was in this story here. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, but when he's writing to this letter, he's writing to the church in Galatia, he's relating this story that happened to him some time ago in the city of Antioch. Peter shows up. We don't know why Peter was in Antioch. Peter was normally in Jerusalem with James. But Peter shows up, and he, we don't know how long he was there, but he was there for uh, enough time to become accustomed to eating with the Gentiles. Now, you have to understand, to a law-abiding Jew, you are not to have any part with the Gentiles unless you were a Jewish believer. And now, as we will see later, now Jews and Gentiles worship together. They worship the same God. They worship Jesus Christ, and they worship under the same roof. In verse number 12, uh, it says this, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, freeing those who were of circumcision. What, what is he afraid of? These certain men, we have no idea really who they are, but these Jewish men came from the church at Jerusalem, and all of a sudden you see Peter, who is so bold, He's accustomed to eating with the Gentiles. He's breaking Jewish custom. He says, I have found new life in Christ. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm going to eat with you guys. We're all one body. We're all one family. We're all part of the body of Christ. Until these Jewish men show up. And Peter all of a sudden shrinks back and he withdraws himself. And I was thinking about this this week, and this sounds a little bit familiar. Where else have we seen Peter being so bold and yet withdraw? We know that the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus tells his disciples, before the night is over, all of you are going to forsake me. All of you are going to run away. You're going to hide. You're going to be afraid. You're not going to be with me come morning light. And you know this story. All the disciples say, no, we're going to stay with you. And the, perhaps the loudest one is Peter who says, Lord, I'm going to die with you. I'm going to go with you to the end. These, these guys over here may forsake you, but I'm going to go with you to the very end. I'm going to die with you. And Jesus says, Peter... Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter continues to say, no, Lord, you, you've got it wrong. I'm never going to do that. I will never deny you. I will be with you to the end. Of course, you know the story. Peter goes and he, he, he doesn't bolt and run just like all the other disciples go. But he does follow Jesus from a distance and he warms himself outside where the Sanhedrin were meeting to, to, to uh, put Jesus on trial. And what does he do? A little girl asks him, you're with Jesus, aren't you? And he says, no, no, I don't know, I don't know the guy. And he does that three times. And Peter goes and he, you know, he, he slinks back and he weeps bitterly. The old Peter is still here. 
This is the same Peter in Antioch. Though he spent three years with Jesus, he saw the transforming power of Jesus. He saw Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen all the miracles. He's seen all the people he's, he, that Jesus has healed. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. Peter has now become a significant figure in the early church, and yet he still can't get away from this old personality trait that he has a big mouth and nothing to back it up with. And he's afraid. He causes division in this church at Antioch. I want you to imagine with me this church at Antioch. You've got Jews on one side. You have Gentiles on the other side. In which if you are not a blood Jew this morning, you, you are a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. All of us would be, if we were in this church, we would be lumped in with this crowd of Gentiles. And Peter, all of a sudden, in verse 13, he says this. Uh, Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You just imagine a church building just split right down the middle, and Peter is on one side, and the Gentiles are coming in. Maybe they're bringing their casseroles to their weekly potluck, and they're coming, and Peter is saying, hey, not today, not today, guys, not today. No, 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 no. Go, go, go to the uh, fellowship hall, go, go to the south wing, go somewhere else, but you're not coming in here today. He's dividing them. As you can imagine, they're, they're probably taken aback by this. And Paul comes in at this point. This had been happening for several weeks. Paul comes in at this point and said, and in front of everybody, he calls Peter out and says, Peter, what are you doing? On one side, if you can imagine with me, you've got Jews on this side. You've got Gentiles on this side. No doubt there was arguments. There was um, some uh, disagreements going on. There was gossip probably circulating amongst both groups. The Gentiles on this side going, uh, What's Peter doing? He's been with us this entire time, and now all of a sudden these guys show up, and, and Peter wants nothing to do with us. And Paul jumps in there, and he says, what are you doing, Peter? He looks over at the crowd, and he sees Barnabas over there. Whether, he was, whether Barnabas was sheepishly shuffling his feet, or Barnabas was standing in defiance against, Peter with, uh, against Paul with Peter as well, we don't, we don't really know. But Barnabas was arguably Paul's best friend. You remember Barnabas was the guy who, when Paul got saved, he was the, Barnabas was the first one who brought him to the other apostles and convinced him that Paul is actually a Christian like the rest of us. He sees his best friend over there standing against the very gospel that Paul has been preaching these last 14 years. You can imagine the heartbreak in Paul. You can imagine the division that's causing in the church. Hypocrisy always distorts the gospel this morning. It created division, but it is also hurtful. Uh, I want you to imagine being a Gentile in this first century church here. And you can imagine that, uh, let me give you some context. So they, every week at, in, in the first century, services were very informal. People would typically uh, bring uh, a meal to eat, to share together after a long week of work. And they would come together. And this was the only body where everybody was on equal footing. And then Peter shows up and he starts dividing the church into different groups. How hurtful is that? You, maybe you are somebody who Peter led to the Lord. Maybe you're, you're sitting there and you're going, Peter, you're, you're, you're going against the very thing that you told me was all right. Like these guys over here are saying we have to be circumcised. We have to do all these rituals. We have to carry out the, and do the dietary restrictions and, and keep to the, the laws of the Jews. And, and you're agreeing with them? I thought I left that lifestyle behind me. I thought I turned from my pagan idols. I thought I turned from my old life. Peter, what are you doing? I'm confused. I'm hurt. 
You've excluded me from this body. Can you imagine not being able to partake in a service at your own church? You come to the door and, and the door is shut. And you look inside the windows and there are people in there. Just nobody that is like you. This wasn't just Peter, this was the rest of Jews as well. The rest of Jews went along this with this. They played the hypocrite as well. It's hurtful. But also, Peter's hypocrisy was heretical. Here at River City Baptist Church and at, and at a, many other churches, back to the time of Christ, we here believe that the Lord's table is only for those of us who have been saved, baptized, added to the church, and are right with God. This church, back in the first century, they would weekly partake in the Lord's table. And as I mentioned earlier, every, every week they would come around in the evening, they would pray, they would sing, they would read some scripture, maybe do a little bit of Bible study, somebody perhaps would preach. But afterward, they would all kind of spread out, they each would bring a special dish, uh, and they would share in a family meal together. Part of that family meal was the observing of the Lord's Supper the bread and the cup, which we do here as well. And every time we do it here at church, pastor issues a strong warning to those who are not saved. If you are not a believer or, or you are not right with God, we warn you strongly, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, many people who take the, body, uh, take the bread and the cup unworthily are sick, they're dead. It is a very serious time. But when, when Peter does this, I want you to understand he doesn't just withdraw himself. He doesn't just divide the church up for the church service and then has everybody else eat in the, in the gymnasium or wherever they had their meal, like all together later. Many scholars, and there's not, there's not a single consensus on this, but many scholars believe that not only did Peter divide the Jews from the Gentiles in the church service, but he also denied them the Lord's table. What does that mean? If Peter does this, if you withhold the elements, if you withhold the bread and the cup from somebody who is a believer and who wants to partake with your body, you are calling them an unbeliever. You see, what Peter was actually doing, he believed the gospel. He believed that you are saved by grace through faith alone. But what his behavior showed was he was calling all of those Gentiles you're as if you're an unbeliever. And before we get too judgmental about Peter, it is so easy sometimes in our mindset to kind of equate some of, some of that same thinking. We may not believe in work salvation. We may not believe in adding to the gospel. But how many times have I heard, well, you just can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. You've added to the gospel. Or you just can't be a Christian and shop at Target. Don't you know that Target has... Uh, messed up politics and they have those genderless bathrooms and yada yada okay I shop at Target I, I like the dollar section okay am I a Christian um, I don't see how you can be a Christian and, and back in when I was younger I don't see how you can be a Christian and have MySpace some of you don't even know what MySpace is all right so <laughs> I think it's I think it's still a thing but nowadays it's like I can't see how you can be a Christian and be on TikTok I don't have a TikTok. I have no idea what it is. I just know that's what the youths are doing these days, right? <laughs> All right? Um, I don't see how you can be a Christian and not love this country. 
be very careful that you don't equate being a Christian with any of these other things. When you start adding things to the gospel, you're building for yourself a works-based salvation. The very thing that Paul is warning against in the latter part of this chapter, these Jews, no doubt they are people that have grown up following the rules. They have hundreds of laws that they keep to. It was very easy for them to bring some of those laws in. You're right with God if you're saved and you do such and such. You do this, you do this, you do this. And Pete, you see what Peter was doing is he's creating division through unnecessary, unbiblical preferences. It is expected that Christians distance themselves from the world, but it is shameful that Christians distance themselves from other Christians. Hypocrisy always distorts the gospel. But number two, the gospel creates unity. I want you to see in verse uh, number 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as the Jews? Why are you separating the two, Peter? Why, why are you making the Gentiles believe that you have to do all of these things in order to be on equal footing with the Jewish people? Peter's private life was like a Gentile's, but his public life was like a Jew. I want you to think about this church for a second. This is the church at Antioch, and there were Persians, Greeks, Jews, Roman citizens, other Gentiles, other people that we may not know about. Antioch at this time, uh, during the first century AD, they estimate that there's around 250,000 people in this city. This is not, a, this is not like small town USA, right? This is not a town of like 400 people with one stoplight, if they have a stoplight. This is a major city. It's huge. There's a lot of people in this church. I don't know how many people there were in this church, but I wonder if they all like the same worship music. I wonder if they all like the same food. I wonder if they all agreed about what programs the church should start and what programs the church should stop. There were different political views. There were different economic statuses. Some of them were free. Some of them were slaves. I wonder if they all got along with each other up to this point. Probably not. You see, what was so special about the church, especially in this uh, Roman milieu, is that you had ton, uh, tons, dozens of people, maybe hundreds, thousands of people at this church, and it was the only point in their life that week where you could be a slave and you could talk as equals to landowners. You could share a meal with those that did not have the same economic status, the same social status, the same race, the same uh, uh, whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. But this was the only point in the week where you could come around as a family. You know, if you think about it, even the disciples didn't get along. You think about, I think about Matthew and Simon, the zealot. Matthew, as many of you know, was a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised by the Jews. You had the Roman government, you had their, uh, their employees, and you had all the provinces they ruled over, and the Jewish people despise anything other than a theocracy. That is, they despise anything else than, than God being the head of their government. And for a Jew to go to work for the Roman government was enough to get him cast out of his family, was enough to get him um, spit at, despised. A tax collector to the Jews was essentially a traitor. And 
If you try to do anything to a tax collector, beware because they have the full backing of the Roman government behind them. You try to cheat them, you try to oppose them, the Roman police are knocking on your door the next day. That's Matthew. He's a tax collector. He cheats people. Cheats people out of their taxes. He's one of the 12. Who's also one of the 12? Simon, the zealot. Now, the zealots were a, uh, a small faction in, in the Jewish uh, party, uh, Jewish people, and they were all about revolution, insurrection, assassinations. Uh, they were scheming all the time about how could they uh, bring downfall to the empire at Rome? How could they go? No, maybe Simon was a hitman. Maybe, no doubt, probably he had attempted some of these coups in local regions and, and governments and provinces. You have this guy. I would equate it today to somebody who's on the far left and somebody who's on the far right. Jesus picked both of them to be his disciples. You see, the gospel is the only thing that matters here. And he transformed Levi, he transformed Matthew, he transformed Simon. But do you think that Simon and Matthew really got along all the time? Probably not. In fact, we see all the time the Bible records that the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who is going to be the greatest one, who is going to be with Jesus, who is going to be part of uh, whatever group. And we know the disciples were arguing with each other. And I think about our church today, there are so many different people here. This church in Antioch, there are so many different people there. The gospel brought them all together. I've said before that uh, I probably would not be friends with probably half or more than that of this room were it not for the common bond that we shared in Jesus Christ. To you, some of you on the street, I probably wouldn't even say hi to you because there's nothing that we have in common other than the gospel. The gospel brings people together. In, uh, in, in chapter, th uh, chapter 3, verse 28, the uh, Apostle Paul goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's all this talk these days about celebrating our differences. No, we ought to acknowledge our differences and celebrate Christ. The gospel flattens our cultural background, but it also focuses on Christ. Look at verse number 16. I say then, uh, sorry, wrong chapter. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The church historian Yaroslav Pelikan said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. The gospel is the only thing that truly matters. These men, we don't really have any idea who they were, but these men were saying that these Gentiles that were in this church had to do all these things. They had to be circumcised. They had to um, obey the uh, Ten Commandments. They had to um, go through the rituals that the Jews had. They had to follow all these rules. What is Paul clearly saying here? He is saying none of that is necessary. In order for you to be a Christian, you believe on Jesus Christ and nothing else. You see... Holiness may make you do certain things, but doing certain things does not automatically make you holy. These Jews had it backwards. They were used to following the law. They were used to doing all of these things, and once you had dotted all your I's and uh, crossed all your T's, you're good, right? 
You offer the same sacrifice, you offer the same sacrifice for that day, you're good. You have found favor with God. That's Old Testament thinking. It's New Testament, Paul is saying, you can no more sanctify yourself than you can justify yourself. So stop trying. I want you to look in verse number 15 here. Verse number 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. As we have so often heard thundered from this pulpit, you contributed nothing to your salvation other than the sin which made it necessary. Stop trying. Stop trying to earn favor with God. The gospel, it neither, uh, it neither conflates and our historical, our cultural background, and it also focuses on Christ. The gospel creates unity. We're all brought together this morning because of the gospel. But finally, the gospel is for everyone. I want you to think about who is speaking here. This is the Apostle Paul. If that doesn't really mean anything to you, I want you to, to, to step back a little bit and let me describe him for you. This is a man who was a murderer. He, before he got saved, he was a very high-ranking member of the Pharisees. He had all of the education. He was extremely smart. And he was the guy that would persecute the Christians. If you were a Christian in this day, he is the man that murdered your family. He's the man that had the police come to your house, invade your home, cart off your husband, your wife, your children, had your husband or wife executed, stoned. Your children are, are, are either killed or abandoned. This is not a very nice man. He records as such in Acts chapter 26. He's standing before uh, King Agrippa, uh, I believe, and he says, he says this in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, Indeed, I myself, though I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus, of, uh, thought my thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And we see also in uh, Acts, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8, now Saul, who is also Paul, was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. We skip down, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging them, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We see in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the very first martyr. And I, I like to imagine Stephen as he's preaching to a congregation who didn't like his message. And they rose up to stone him. And they carry Stephen off, they force him down into this, this damp pit outside the city walls, perhaps, and they start getting stones to throw at him. And Stephen, as he's laying there, and as those cruel rocks begin to rain down upon him, I can just see Stephen's face, his face is bloody, maybe his eyes swollen shut already, he's looking, and the last person he sees standing up there is Saul. Saul's looking at him, and maybe as the Roman emperors do, he's giving him a thumbs down. And the men that were executing Stephen lay their clothes on, at Paul's feet. And, and Stephen's very last words, as he's looking into the eyes of Paul, he says, Lord, lay not this into their charge. 
And maybe the next rock comes down and he falls to the ground and he's lifeless. He's in eternity just like that. If you permit me this morning, I, I'd like to engage in a little bit of heavenly speculation. I was talking with Dave about this earlier this week. And I could just imagine Paul, years later, he's an old man now. He's in, he's in prison at Rome and he's writing these letters. And he's going and he's, he's writing to Timothy. He's trying to get all of his thoughts out before he's executed. Because tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded uh, for the cause of Christ in Rome. He's writing these letters, and as he's sitting there, he's ready. He's ready to go. He's fought his good fight. He's finished the course. He's kept the faith. And as he's led into the execution chamber, the, the blade falls, and Paul's in eternity. And he enters the throne room of heaven. I've been, I've been thinking about this all week. <laughs> he enters the throne room of heaven. He sees Jesus. He falls to his knees, and he starts worshiping the lamb. He sees there, as maybe John probably did in the book of Revelation, and, he see, and, he, and he's there, and we don't know how long he's there, but as he lifts his head up, he feels a hand on his shoulder, and he turns around, and it's Stephen. He turns him around, and he embraces him. Stephen said, I knew you'd come around. I knew it. I've been watching you. Paul is in eternity. And I, I'm just telling you this morning, the kind of man that Paul was, the murderer that he was, the gospel can save anyone. Yeah. I want you to think about that. The gospel can save anyone. Think about yourself. Believers, if, you're, if you find yourself sinning, know that Paul had the same struggles. If you read verse 17... He says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Meaning, is Christ condoning your sin after you've gotten saved and you find yourself falling again? Of course not. He is not condoning it. You parents in the room know just as, just as well this, the sentiment expressed by this verse. No matter what your child does, if they, if they sin, if they disobey, if they disrespect you, no matter what your child does, they will always be your little boy or your little girl. That relationship will always be there. There is nothing that they can do that will make them not your child. How much more the perfect parent, the perfect father, the perfect Jesus. You've been born again. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, predestined to glory. Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You're a believer this morning. You're going to mess up. You're going to sin. Christ still forgives you. To my unbelieving friends in the room this morning, and I have no doubt that there are at least a few of them here, you have no idea really what I'm talking about, perhaps. You came to church on a whim, you were invited by somebody, you saw our church sign, saw the time, thought maybe I should go to church today. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, I want to say to you this morning, you do not rise up to meet God. God reaches down and picks you up this morning. You find yourself uh, trying to live in your own power, trying to make some rules for yourself, trying to do better, turn over a new leaf. Stop it. There was another famous figure from history that tried to do the exact same thing. His name was Benjamin Franklin. 
Benjamin Franklin wrote in his autobiography, he wrote this, it was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. So he did this. He listed 13 virtues. Some of you may know that he had this list. He listed 13 virtues that he would work on. One, he would work on every week for an entire year. So your rotation is 13 times four times through the year. That gives you, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, 13 um, 13 on a rotation of four, I believe, gives you 52 weeks. So he listed 13 of these. Here's his virtues. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, in industry, sincerity, justice, uh, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. And here's what he would do. He would keep a calendar every week. He would draw around it a calendar with a week and the virtue that he was working on. And every time he messed up, he would put a little ink blot there on that day. And... Of course, as he first started, he, he records in his autobiography, I did not realize how many faults I really had until I started keeping track of them. <laughs> he, so he gets by the first week, really rough. He keeps going for an entire year. And every week, he still keeps seeing those black ink spots. Those black ink spots that say, Benjamin, you are guilty. You are not perfect. After an entire year of this, he... He says this, he said, I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it. Every week, ink blots. Every week, he'd scratch them out, rub them out with a uh, wet sponge, or eventually his pages got so tattered that he would start tearing holes in it because he was trying to erase those black ink spots. How's your calendar looking today, this morning? You trying to still erase those ink blots from your calendar? Are you trying to live each day, trying to do better and finding yourself falling, fall short? In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is that you this morning? You have your sin, you have your vices, your habits, your addictions, your dishonesty, murderous thoughts, hateful behavior, ruined relationships in the past. Is that you this morning? Are you a mess this morning? You've got it all together on the outside and yet you struggle every week. Sin after sin after sin. I want you to read with me in verse number 16. We've read this several times today, but let's read it again. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You have a choice this morning. If you are not a believer, if you've not accepted Christ as your Savior this morning, you can either still struggle with your sins or you can take the grace of God, but you can't take both. Paul says, do not set aside the grace of God. Or in, in the King James, it says, do not frustrate the grace of God. Because if you do try to follow the law, then Christ has died in vain. You have a choice this morning. Are you going to keep struggling or are you going to accept the forgiveness, accept the reconciliation, accept the sweet fellowship that God is extending to you? Lay your sins, your burdens, your cares, all your shortcomings at the cross of Christ this morning. The forgiveness of God and his transformative power are as close to you as the whisper of his name.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.